And what we'd like to do is ask you a question. Um, and, and the question is, what, what questions do you have for us that we could talk about, answer, or attempt to answer, or dialogue about, that would be the most beneficial to your practice and awakening? And so if you have one question to ask about your practice or about your awakening, what would that be? What would you like us to speak to? What would have real life for you or juice for you or be really pertinent for you? And everybody has to come up with one question. Because then if nobody raises their hand, I'll, st I'll just start calling on people. Okay? So I'd like you to take a minute and just really consider what would be the most pertinent or important or vital or live question for you. How do you go from watching the breath to the experience of the spirit? How do you do that? Look, <laughs> <laughs> the um, asking the question doesn't necessarily guarantee answers. I just put that clause in there, but. <laughs> um, but to reflect, I mean, that's interesting because I haven't ever thought of it quite like that because I've never perhaps made such a distinction between breath and spirit. Um, in some ways, I find that they, they, there's a way that they, they're, 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 uni they're a unified whole. Um, and, uh, you know, in, 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 and, and I've never really ex looked at it in terms of watching the breath. And I think that's a rather unfortunate way that sometimes the whole meditation on breath gets communicated. There's a sort of world watcher watching this thing called the breath. And in reality, in, the, um, um, in one of the phrases in the early Pali, Sabbakaya Patisangwedi, means, Sabbakaya means whole, whole body, feeling with, Pati uh, Sangwedi means feeling with whole body. So there's this idea of merging, in a way, awareness within breath, within body. And so as one deepens into that and there's more of a unified experience, then you know, the watcher begins to dissolve and there's a sense of actually being in a flow. And, and that, that in how, as, that, as that sense of flow and unification starts to happen, then we begin to experience the vitality of a connectedness that comes when, when there's a dropping, in a way, into, into awareness, the primordial seat of the mind, that which is present and aware and connected. You know, and, and, and being with breath within body is the doorway into that dropping, if you like. And then in a way that that sense of vitality, connectedness, intuitive awareness that starts to flow, I would, you know, you know it's not necessarily a word that's perhaps um, current in Buddhism, but I think it's a very good word in terms of our you know, um, Western understanding, but I would say that's the flow of spirit. I would just, that was lovely. And I would just add that if you actually look at the word spirit in Latin, it means breath. 
So it's really not, it's exactly what Tanisra is saying, that it's the breath itself is spirit, and that when we unify with our experience, then what's there? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. It's if you're if I'm just repeating it because we're recording. So, if you're dealing, if you take a day out to be with a, a serious issue in one's life, at what point does it become an obsession? Uh, I can't remember the other ways you you thinking, thinking just distraction, just you know inquiry. How to be with? How to take time to be with in a skillful or optimum way? Um, and I think that one of the values of taking time out is that it can really allow us to disengage from the mechanisms that operate in the mind that keep us driven onwards and not n- sometimes really taking that time to evaluate how is our life, what are we working with, and particularly if there's something that we really need to attend to. I think for me, in those moments, I try and enter in relationship to whatever I'm engaging with without trying to get to an outcome or without trying to fix it or without trying to solve or resolve or place or find meaning. So once I disengage my agenda from that part of me that wants to get it sorted, then it allows again a dropping into a relationship with the actuality of whatever is, you know, presumably, you know, the issue is whatever, you know, you know, presumably it's often quite problematic. It might, it might not be, and then it's an easier process to be with. But if it's problematic for me, it's about how to be in relationship with it, in a way that can honour the depth of the process of it, um, and allow an organic, um, intuitive uprising of understanding that can illuminate a way forward if that is if that comes to be and and in in some ways being with it um, to allow that in an optimal way is very simple because um, you know the the medium to allow clarity illumination healing is is awareness itself so for me what I I do when there's an issue is just to keep trying again to drop beneath the storyline and the reactivity and the thinking about to really feel into, you know, where do I feel this? Where is it in the body? Where is it as feeling tone? Where can I mix? Can I mix awareness with that and with the thought processes? And as I deepen the samadhi, the the focusing with breath, with awareness in relationship to the dynamic that I'm with, then often, the, you know, understandings will come, um, illumination will come, and and sometimes even the sense that of a deeper equanimity can come in the midst of what is actually quite troubling and then so so then there's a possibility to hold it in a different way 
the, the piece I want to highlight that Tanisra just said that I think is the hardest piece for practitioners is to, even when there's um, one is thinking about something, contemplating something, reflecting on something, how to stay present in real time even when there is, is you know, the content of our experience. And, and then the body becomes very important, being mindful of the body, even while we're thinking changes the whole experience. It, bring, it grounds it in the reality of now. And so that there is a way to use thought, is to use inquiry, to use investigation, to use contemplation, with, and it's still a meditation. It's not simply a thinking about, because we're actually present while we're thinking. Yeah, I think that's really important. The questions about being mindful of uh, emotions like anger or sadness um, and how to be in relationship with them where we don't repress them, but we're not simply um, in the thrall of them. Um, and my, we, may, we may have some different ways that we talk about this. Let's see. But uh, personally, I have, my motto is let it rip. And let it rip means not, doesn't mean to act on the emotion, but it means to allow it fully. And so it's, it's really the middle path between acting on it and repressing it. But actually just seeing well, what happens when we really feel it, what happens when we get present. It's actually not so dissimilar from what I just said about being with thought. To really stay present with the emotion, to ground in the body, to see what's happening. What's the fire of anger feel like? What's the, what happens when we're angry? Instead of simply acting on the anger, but what happens when we turn our attention this way, when we hold it in awareness, as uh, Tanisra is suggesting, and then let it be here. Let it be here fully. Let it be a big fire. Let it be a volcano. But we're not doing it in the service of simply healthy expression. We're doing it in the service of liberating the emotion itself to see what is this? What is this fire? Or when there's sadness, to really feel the sadness, to be sad, to allow the tears, and to stay present. And so then an important principle here becomes balance. Because some emotions are so strong, some emotional states are so strong, it, is that they throw us out of balance. And so then it's very helpful to um, at times actually to then move away from the motion to get some balance so that we can be in, we can be thrown again by the motion with balance. Sometimes people think of uh, equanimity as meaning not having any emotion and being kind of flat. It's not, it's not my understanding of equanimity. Equanimity for me means something, being able to be turned upside down and stay present with being turned upside down. Actually, I would subscribe to all of that. And uh, just to add another piece, um, 
what, what enables that staying of present, you know, um, without the, the repression or the acting, inappropriate acting out um, and projection, and therefore a loss of perhaps the containment of the energy that can reveal within itself a deeper intelligence. You know, each of these energies that we name sometimes has a, an intelligence and a knowledge and a wisdom in them that we have to listen um, enough to hear what it is and so for me that's that's the work of mindfulness mindfulness is the container it's a dynamic pro mindfulness is the ability to bring attention to but also to hold within awareness you know there's a term with mindfulness yoni so mani sakara which means literally yoni so means uh, means something like womb or primordial matrix of awareness. So it's this sense of that which is aware, bringing within that the content of the mind and contemplating it, containing it for the sake of its liberation or its revelation. So, um, so it's just that's the work of mindfulness. And one, one, one of the things that Ajahn Chah, a forest teacher, Thai teacher, would say is that the meditation that we do in the ordinary circumstance is preparation for those moments when those very strong energies or experiences hit and there's a potential just to be washed away, overwhelmed, repressive, to be able to contain, you know, have you got a strong enough container to hold so you can transform and liberate that energy. Yeah. So the question is, in the Theravada, you're asking what is the <coughs> the view of the Theravada of what, what, what happens when one takes life? Yeah. I don't know if there's an exact one view. I expect if you went for, to different teachers or different ways of looking, then there will be different reflections and um, perspectives on it. Um, usually, um, when generally, when there's a death, however it happens, whether it's a taking of life, whether it's a natural death, whether it's a violent death, um, usually there's the relationship that still goes on to the consciousness. So there's there's an ability to stay in relationship, and in that process, there would be the um, the the trying to help the support the transition for the person that's died in the optimum way possible. So in the Theravada tradition, there's, there's the, um, the holding of ceremony, the holding of chants, the dedication of blessings, and that goes on. Um, we can go on indefinitely, but it goes on definitely um, initially after the death and then in different um, um, anniversaries of the death when one brings to mind the being and holds in consciousness that being and, and, and their death and their passing and your, your perception of them um, and just mixes that again with the blessing energy of the ceremony and the chanting and the dedication of, of blessings or what's called punya, positive energy towards that being. What exactly happens I think is probably part of the mystery. is to be as present as I possibly can 
every every moment of my life. Um, as a householder, some of the things I really enjoy is eating really amazing meals, being really active and taking a lot of pleasure in that, having sexual activity, doing all of these things that um, are that bring me pleasure. And when I read the suttas, I come back again and again and again to the primacy of the renunciate life. And I wonder, as someone who has been on both sides of that, um, <laughs> if you have some uh, reflections that you might share about householders and, and how to integrate at least a part of that. What I'm, I'm after not having a, a Buddhism that has a big schism down the middle, mm. one for monastics and one for lay people. Clearly, there are different ways of practicing, but I suspect as householders, there's some things we can take from that that will enrich us. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that. Yeah, this is, this is in a way quite an archetypal question, of course. I mean, you're speaking to it very personally, but it's a question in, that relates to the movement of Buddhism in the West and the placement of the renunciant life, which was the optimum model that the Buddha um, lived and taught. Repeat the question. I, I, I'm trying to. <laughs> the question is, what is the place of pleasure and the experience of pleasure and the, exp- and the, and the living through pleasure a sensory pleasure, sexual pleasure, um, when it's put against the original template of, the, of the, what the Buddha left, which was a renunciant life, the monastic life, and that he was a renunciant, and he talked about the limitations of sensory pleasure. And I agree with you. I think to hold, I think there's things to learn. Having been on both sides, as you say, of the wall, <laughs> there are things to learn from both. From both, I, I think there's a lot to learn from renunciation. The, the ability to, to explore what happens when you don't fulfill desire, you know, and you frustrate desire. You know, that is, that is a profound learning, and it burns, and it's difficult, you know, and sexual desire, you know, having lived as a celibate for many years, there was, there's, a, there's an enormous, um, just because you live as a celibate doesn't mean to say there's not a sexuality going on, and celibacy is a sexual choice in a certain way. And there's an, an enormous amount to learn around containing that energy and its expression, you know, to to uh, to really contemplate. And the same in sensual, in sensual experience, not being able to in a monastic life, you have one meal before noon and you don't eat, you don't choose what you eat, you can't go out to the restaurant, and so on. And so what, that life brings a certain simplicity and depth, which often is more lay life is more dispersed. And so without a renunciant sense, you don't get a feeling of what is is the mind's energy and sometimes the rawness of being faced with unfulfilled desire and then just really contemplating that energy when it's not dispersed, when it's not being fed. And that's powerful and I recommend that just as a practice to explore. However, there can be a way that that in and of itself, as an end in itself, can uh, lead to a lack of integration and maturing in certain ways. Because when you, when you look at the experience of sexual pleasure, it's also about relationship and intimacy and love. You know, and those are things that are more difficult to explore in some ways in monastic life. And, they, and that has its own richness and its own depth and its own 
complexity, you know. So, so I, for, for myself, I feel that once you understand the principles of practice, that there, you can learn in any context. However, having also said that, that um, you know, as, as, as lovely as sensual pleasure is, there is a limitation to it. And sometimes we can't always have that available to us. So the whole art of meditation is learning to access a depth of pleasure that's not dependent on sensory uh, fulfillment. And that's, that's a very subtle pleasure and a very fine pleasure. And it's a pleasure that can draw up from within the mind itself, within the consciousness itself. And that's you know, the art of samadhi and the, and the process of insight. Um, and, and I think, you know, as householders, it's easy, it's easy to, to really not appreciate that depth because of the, the seductive power particularly in our modern culture of, of the, init- the you know, immediacy of having our, our, our desires fulfilled. So, yeah, so as I'm talking, I haven't already got a clear answer, but as I'm talking, I'm realizing maybe it's about a balance. Maybe it's exploring if we're really dependent on a lot of, you know, of our juice in life, on sensory pleasure, it might be interesting to explore the other. You know, what is it like to actually, you know, um, challenge that? And not go along. And on the other hand, if we are really fearful, like in a monastic, monastics can get very, very fearful of contact and of, of pleasure. Then maybe it's important to open oneself up and see what is it like to feel flooded with pleasure. You know. Um, and I think the only last thing I want to say is a big subject, so I want to just acknowledge that. But it was a, a lovely quote from um, a, an Advaita Vedanta teacher, Srinasagadatta where he said maybe you know he said his his perspective were that some desires have to be lived out before they fall away and some fall away by themselves and i think there's that territory in it as well what what do we have to experience before it, it's it, it's sort of we don't need to experience anymore we know the fullness of our own being <laughs> without depending on so many different experiences you know sometimes we just have to live through things until they just you know, die away of their own accord. And other things that quickens, you know, that's the whole renunciant practice is the quickening of that process. But yeah, one last thing to add. Sorry, it's such a big question, but you know, in lay life it is very interesting to say be able to say no sometimes because you're saying yes to your own energy, you know, with sensory pleasure. So that might be an edge to explore. You know, what's that like? Yeah, I, I think this is really a great question for all of us. And it's one of the reasons why going on retreat, sometimes when people go on retreat, every once in a while they say, well, wouldn't this really be powerful even if we didn't do any meditation? And the truth is it would, just by going on retreat and giving up everything that we're used to having. And just to go in a bare uh, way and be with oneself. You don't, in some sense, even if you didn't have meditation instruction and you just go and you don't have the newspaper and the TV and your Palm Pilot and your, you know, uh, iPod phone or your whatever it is, the computer and the email and the car and the people and the food and and it could and just making life very simple is when we go on retreat, we're taking on a little bit of a renunciate life. And so it's a great opportunity for lay people to start to get a taste 
not only of what renunciation is, but the pleasure of renunciation. The pleasure of not having to deal with all this stuff all the time, even when it's good. There's still a little bit, if you look, one of the interesting pieces, and, and I'm a, definitely a lay person, and I enjoy life, but if you really look carefully, you'll see there's a little bit of dukkha with all of it. It's not, you know, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Even like the best meal, you know, you still have to kind of digest it, you know, and it's rich, and I mean, it's great, it's good, the food's great, or even, you know, the ride, we took a bike ride today, Paul and I, I mean, it's, it's great, but it was also hard, you know, it was, it's not all it's cracked up to be, and so, so to be able to see that, and I, I know, where, here's where I want to go with this, is that, um, for me, I think a lot about renunciation as the capacity or ability to just let go of things, to really see that there's nothing really outside of us. I mean, we can enjoy everything, but that's not really what's going to give us the highest happiness. That what, what Tanisra has pointed to, what we really seek, and this is why um, not fulfilling the desires is so p powerful is then you start to see well, what are you really wanting if you can't fulfill it what's that want what's that desire what's that yearning what's that thirst what is that for and really it's for it's for ourselves it's for our awakening it's for our freedom or whatever word you, one might use to the, the real joy or pleasure of awakening itself. So the question is how to work with the breath when the breath feels shallow. So I have one, one question for you. Does anxiety come? Are you feeling anxious and you're breathing shallow? Or do you get anxious because you're breathing shallow and feel like you should be breathing deeper? I think I'm getting anxious because I'm Okay. So don't worry about it. <laughs> And I, I mean that quite sincerely. It's fine if your breath is shallow in meditation. We're not trying to breathe any way. You, you can take some time to breathe deeply if you want, and like at the beginning of a meditation. Take some time, you exaggerate the breath, take a few deep breaths, but then let the breath find its own rhythm and find its own level. And then... Um, um, the the breath can get very fine, very refined. It can stop. It's not a problem. 
more the emphasis on can you be aware of it? Can you let the breath train you, fine-tune your awareness so you know what's happening even when the breath is very fine? You're knowing the breath is being fine. You're feeling it. As Tanisha said, you just you can let your consciousness get as fine as the breath. And so the merging is is really meeting with the breath, being with the breath, being the breath, even when it's very fine. And then see what happens. Instead of having some idea about how we're supposed to be, in this case, how the breath is supposed to be, and then trying to make ourselves into that. Much more the emphasis is in being with things as they are, and then seeing what happens as we find our ground in the middle of being with things as they are. Yeah, exactly. I, just to um, add another little point was is is that um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, which of course starts with breath. Um, first of all, the Buddha talks about the long breath, which is following the inhalation, the exhalation, you know, the complete flow of that movement. But the short breath is where often when we the attention gets drawn to a part of the breath body which is we experience as, as rhythm, but we, we experience it as, as energy or as vibration in one subtle part of the, as a subtle sensation, one part of the body. So that might be at the nostrils, it might be around the heart, it might be in the abdomen, it might be in a part of the body. And that, and that can get very fine, and then one can even move one's attention. Even that can be coarse, actually, when the, when the mind becomes, when there's more um, increase of gatheredness. Uh, of bodily, heart, mind, energies within awareness and then one might find one's attention moving to a more subtle sign just very, very subtle vibration in the energy body or, or s- subtle sound or sound or you know and, and one can even just let go of that too you know so that there can be ways of moving in and out of the ob- in relationship with the object of meditation depending on the subtlety of experience but it's not, as Eugene says, nothing to worry about. It's part of the territory, in fact. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind going back a little bit to the dealing with strong emotions question. Um, because I found myself a month ago um, really overwhelmed by the situation and the emotions that went along with it. Um, and my response was really to step away I've learned a bit about how to not push my own buttons and not go down that road. But at the same time, I also am a little wary of being open to this sort of area in the, in the fear that it will overwhelm me again. And I can be in touch with the aversion and all that. But I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, ways to start sort of experimenting with that gently in a sort of way that feels safe. Yes, so the question is about working with strong emotions with enough containment so they don't overwhelm and developing skill in relationship to them, which is a good question. And often, again, we find the balance by finding ourselves either being overwhelmed and experiencing that or or trying desperately to push and defend against unpleasant feeling. So I think in terms of contexting the relationship to 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 this territory is the recognition that it takes time to develop skill but skill can be developed 
and and in that being willing to sometimes feel like we we're getting it wrong somehow that we're not really getting it wrong you know but um, but definitely there is a skill in training the attention away if we feel we're on the edge of overwhelm or feel we're being sucked into a mental pathway where we're just going to be in a whirlpool of negativity or of pain of some sort the whole skill of, of directing attention this is a, one aspect of mindfulness training to that which is more wholesome until there's enough capacity to then turn and, and contain whatever we're working with. So that might be to breath or to mantra. I use mantra quite a lot, actually, a word, because it gives a cognitive holding for the mind, which, you know, just a, whatever word you, you find helpful. I, I, I just use, because we were taught that in from the Thai school, the word buddho, which is the um, mantric form of Buddha, just reminding me to be present with the breath, you know. So sometimes in the midst of a really turbulent state, just going buddho with the breath buddho begins to just connect you with your awareness which isn't the state you begin to distinguish the uh, the mind's awareness from the state which is an important distinction to begin to be able to make and part of the skill so you know or just to take you know if it if it's if it's too strong and that's not working to be able to take your attention to something you know m- more powerful that's wholesome going for a walk talking to a friend getting support getting help you know something that's wholesome that can help support you so there's a whole level of a range of how we cultivate uh, resourcing which is a therapeutic word more than a meditative work to 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 build up enough positive wholesome and um, um, you know um, holding that we can then turn to sometimes um, those difficult uh, and potentially overwhelming mind states of course that's not always something we can do we just get boom hit and the reactions happen and if that's the case then we just have to remind ourselves to be as patient as possible and as kind as possible in the process until we can find our steadiness again uh, and then to realize well, yeah, well, this is a training this is an ongoing training to cultivate that kind of skill but it can be done most definitely and it's a very worthwhile thing to cultivate I'll just add a teeny bit about what Tanisara just referred to as resourcing and I would also talk about it in terms of learning how to titrate our experience and so taking little bites and what's skillful then is to actually go away from the feeling at times and I even you know seeing a video or going to a movie or really okay I'm not going to go there now and really doing that consciously can be very helpful and I, I think it's an, it's interesting that we've had two questions now about strong emotions, and I think it's one of the areas that we're still learning how to deal with skillfully, and I don't think it, it's been dealt with so directly, or you know I I can't say for sure, but it just traditionally a lot of the traditional teachers. Emotions, you know, you just you just be mindful of them. Just see that they're emotions, and that's it. And that there's something happening here in the West because we value emotions very much. Emotions are very important to us in a, in a way that is culturally not the same uh, traditionally in Asia. And so we're still learning the skills for how to really, as I would say, learn to liberate our emotions and. 
Maybe I'll just add one other piece, which is that they, there is, uh, Tanisara is pointing to it, she was saying the wisdom and the energy. What's the wisdom and the energy? There is a capacity for emotions to transmute or transform. You know, and that anger, if, it's, if we really learn to metabolize it, it turns into clarity and a certain kind of strength and energy and vigor and expansiveness and aliveness. And it's good. And so sometimes just to even have the context that that's possible is very helpful to say, okay, I'm going to take a little bite now and see what this is. And then I'm going to go away from it. And then I'm going to come back or, you know, really it's going to come back to me no matter what I do. So then the question of skillfulness becomes really important. And as I was saying, balance. Don't be afraid to find your balance. If you've got a strong emotion, it'll come back again. There's another piece I'd like to um, add on because I think it is such a big area and it is the reality of what most of us work with all the time and and it's it's very painful sometimes but um, to recognize as as practitioners of awareness as we open our, which is an opening really of the mind from its defenses and it's, you know, the, the way that we hold conceptual frameworks that keep us a little divorced from the impact of the reality of of the flow of consciousness that we're going to probably feel things more <laughs> you know we're more going to be more sensitized we're going to be more open to feeling our experience and we're also going to be more open to a communal consciousness which where there's a lot of unowned emotions so sometimes what can happen for meditators is we can actually feel a lot of things that aren't actually ours so to speak they might trigger us because we carry some of that within ourselves but we can go into a field and be quite open and aware and we're not so defended in, in, in quite the usual way. And one can feel, God, there's a, you know, I, feel, I suddenly feel really sad or I feel really heavy. Or, and it, it might not be about us at all, actually. We're just picking up on something that's there in the, in the consciousness. So it's just to be aware of that. And that's you know, the teaching of anatta, to see on some level this, isn't a, this, is, this, this is empty of self. This isn't, you know, often what we do with strong emotion is say, I feel full of this and I'm therefore I am blah, 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 you know, a mess. <laughs> but to realize there, there, there is this experience without using that language to deny or disassociate, but there is this really strong experience of grief here. And there's a lot of grief in the world and anger and frustration and you know there, there's a lot of that floating around and you know as someone that's open like living in South Africa a country in crisis all the time with a lot of violence there's a lot of turbulence and I feel almost consistently turbulent there you know just feel it in the guts you know and if I keep thinking that's me this is my stuff then it gets very confusing but I can just say this is just energy you know and as I mix it with awareness you know, it's there. You know, this is a whole bodhisattva heart that you just hold with awareness to whatever you experience and breathing with it. You're actually helping to oxygenate and liberate those energies that are, that are in a way looking for release. You know, our, our teacher used to call them orphans of consciousness, the Sajjan Sumedho, that these things, when you're open, they'll come to visit. You know, and we thought, oh, that's my stuff, and we get all tangled up in it. And you say, well, this is just like this. It's anatta, it's shunyata. It's, it's non-self, it's empty as well. You know, uh, and sometimes it's self, it's all stuff, but often it's not. It's just the things that are floating and flowing through the consciousness. So that's also helpful just to have that perspective in the mix too. Mm.
is what? Act as if. So the question is, when there is a lot of suffering, um, and say if one is in recovery, that the advice is to act as if it will get better, to have faith. I think that's incredibly important in this whole mix, and it will. It will. I mean, I have I've have a great confidence and trust in the power of mindfulness and awareness and transformation um, of suffering and and the Dharma to to the teachings to help that process happen. Um, and I think this sometimes, even if we feel completely um, impacted by suffering, I mean, this is where just sitting in a strong pra- posture and breathing and being confident that just that in and of itself will begin to sometimes uh, oxygenate and loosen and transform the suffering. You know, we're taking, we're actually applying faith right in the heart of the mix, you know, with the awareness, with the. With the with the that which can know the suffering isn't the suffering. It's like taking your seat in the knowing, in the Buddha, so to speak, and working with the suffering. That that has a powerful uh, alchemical effect on the experience of suffering. Um, and again, I'm reminded of something that um, um, Nisag- Nisagadatta said, who I like very much in one of his um, books. Well, it was recorded teachings of called I Am That where he says in a way practice it's a bit like where we've you know our true inheritance as uh, of having an awakened my heart you know, our true inheritance is to be awakened but we don't recognize that we don't really fully are able to embody that to, or to know that and he said in a way it's a bit like a pauper pretending to be a prince <laughs> and eventually when you pretend enough it will happen <laughs> so when we sit as the buddha you know, breathing with awareness, with this moment, with however it is, we're, we're we're in that process of taking faith in our true nature, and eventually it will start to, you know, happen. <laughs> and so I, I feel faith in the process is very important. Um, partly, your question about um, brings up the question: is how how do we develop faith? You know, it's at least for me. It's easy for somebody to say, "Oh, just pretend, or just believe, or just." And I always—it's one reason why I like to encourage people to actually practice and go on a retreat and take time to to be with ourselves and to learn the skills to be with ourselves, because that's really where my faith comes from, and the faith that Tanisra comes from, I believe, also comes from having practiced. Because it's inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. It's part of this realm of existence. And it gets highlighted on retreat. And what's beautiful about the retreat form is it's really, it's really like uh, post-graduate post, post school for human beings. You know, it's, beyond school. it's the school beyond school. And it's the school that lets us begin to really see how do we develop the skills to be with this experience, with this human experience, which has doubt and disbelief and no faith. And then real faith comes because we're there and we see, oh, we can be here. And even though we feel like shit or we're scared or we're furious or whatever it is, 
and then we find just the capacity to breathe, to stay present. And then, not just that, but at some point it releases. And that's nice. <laughs> it's not just to be with the suffering, but to see that we're, we're not the suffering. The suffering is also a transitory, as, as Tanisha is saying, empty experience. It's not solid. Even if it's been here for 20 years, a moment of relief, a moment of release, and we know faith. And then even though there'll be a lot more suffering, we know that there's something possible, that we are something more than that suffering. Just to add, because this is such, again, all these questions are great, but... um, there's a lovely, um, again, not quite an archetypal image of the Buddha's night of enlightenment when he's sitting under the Bodhi tree and he's faced with all these forces that have come to uh, trick him, really, to trip him up, to, to pull him, to, over, to overwhelm him. And he just sits there, and it's called the forces of Mara, all those things that shape us and move us and overwhelm us and bring us to suffering. And he just sits there and he just goes, I know you. And it's that statement, you know, I just, I just know you. I know you, you as this experience. It's that that has the power to take, and takes, begins to drain the power out of the suffering. Just to say, I know you, you know, I know you just like this. Rather than, I'm this, and what can I do about it? <laughs> yes, and that's the place of confidence. So this is another good question, another very human question that we struggle with. How do we know the difference between intuition and just the mind um, prematurely trying to come to resolve to alleviate anxiety, which might feel like the right thing, but maybe not? And so this territory is hard to know. As I find personally, it's not always easy to know, and sometimes I, I think I'm moving in the right way, and it's maybe it's it's not as deeply guided as it could be, and then there are consequences to that. Um, but what I have, what I have been working on, not always successfully, but I think it's an edge, is to try and just listen more deeply and feel it in my guts. You know, when I feel intuition working, there's just a feeling about it of just rightness. And my partner, um, Kitty Saro, would say it's something. It's a bit like cooking something. You know, when you're when you're with a decision or a process and it's not clear yet. Sometimes you just have to let it cook, and that can some around some things that can be a few minutes, other things it can be a few years. I don't quite know, but while there's the doubt there, we know the doubt, and we just keep letting it cook and mature and feeling into it. And then when the feeling of intuition is ripe and it comes up, then then it's almost like your whole bodily energies are behind it. It just feels right. There's a there's a sort of a a trust in it, huh? No. 
you know it yeah and when when it's not when it's coming from my mind I feel like I'm out there on a sort of a bit of a like I'm walking the plank it's a bit more fragile feeling about it it's like well it might be a resolve but it mm, or I'm being pulled by some pattern you know to to accommodate someone else's need or to come to quick resolution and that's just got a very different it feels more anxious it feels more skittish it feels I feel like I lose myself in it but I, I, it's just difficult territory. I, I wish you well with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The same. And just add, just that there feels like when the intuition is really there, there's a presence that's there. And there's a kind of presence that's palpable and um, <clears throat> um, enjoyable. And, a, and there's, there's an actual knowing rather than an idea, belief, Anxiety moving me. Okay, last question. Make it good. No, no pressure. Okay. Yeah. The witch. So how much being with negative thinking is, say that again? Being with what's real or what's happening and how much is getting caught in it. How to engender a more positive form of thinking. More positive thoughts. More positive outlook. Okay. Um, you know, contemplating the process of thought is a huge area of mindfulness and really an important area. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a number of different responses. One is, well, I hope you at least feel positive towards your negative thoughts. I mean, you know, they're, they're just thoughts. And so, so really to spend some time uh, contemplating thought. What is it? What's happening when it comes? Why do I believe it? Is it true? I mean, are the thoughts true? I mean, you know, honestly, if I look, 90, 90, 90, maybe 99% of my thoughts really are pretty much kind of rubbish. You know, sometimes they look good, but mostly... <laughs> It's just not. I'm just making things up about the world, about other people, about myself, about reality, about what's going to happen, about what did happen. It's just, it's just thought. I, I don't, I don't have a reaction to it these days. Partly based on practice, most of the time, it's just thought. It's just my mind, and I mean, and I kind of enjoy it. You know, it has a certain flavor. It's got this Eugene kind of flavor, and it's. <laughs> You know, and it's familiar, and it's got a certain attitude about this stuff, and it likes this stuff, and it doesn't like that stuff. But I just don't take it too seriously anymore. And so, 
you know, to, if you, you know, and I don't know, maybe people can change their outlook in that way. I don't know. I haven't exactly, I still have an aversive mind. I've always had an aversive mind and it's, and I like my aversive mind, but, but I don't, but I don't feel so identified with it. I don't feel so identified with it. I don't believe it. I just see, oh, you know, it's functioning. It makes sense. This, blah, 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 blah. You know, that's, sometimes it's really funny or really cynical or really this or that. But I don't believe it. When I believe it, I know I need to do some more practice. And what do I do? I actually, so what do I do? So let's say I'm having some really aversive thought and I'm really believing it. First thing I do is go to my body. What's happening in my body? Because it helps ground me out of this kind of uh, uh, holistic world of thought into something a little more substantial. And usually I'll find a contraction. The body will be in contraction. If I'm having negative thoughts and I'm really believing and I'm really attached to it, I'm really identified, there'll be a contraction in the body. And then I want to stay with that contraction. I want to feel that contraction. I, again, I'm the let it rip school, so I'm not trying to change it. I'm just, okay, let it be here. I hate that person. And then really, if I'm really identified, then I want to feel it all the way. Okay, hatred, hatred, hatred. I just want to kill them, annihilate them. <laughs> I just feel it, feel it, feel it. And then slowly, and I know this from my own practice, and slowly it will begin to show what's there. And what's there, so there's this hatred and I can feel the reaction. And then at a certain point, either some fear will come or hurt will come or something will come that's generated this reaction. And then now it gets more juicy, actually. It's, oh, you know, I can feel the fear and the fear, shaky, shaky, shaky. And, you know, and I know fear enough, so also it's not, I don't take it personally, it's just fear. But again, all of this is predicated by having some skill um, to know how to work with it and having spent some time um, seeing that the practice works so I have faith in it, so I don't have to just try to fix it really quickly. And then what I've also seen is that usually something will come that is not the hatred, that is not the fear. And I also want to be really mindful of that. I want to be mindful of the not suffering experience. Remember the Buddha said he taught one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. When the suffering starts to release or let go or, or, or vanish, I want to stay very present then. Because that, it, it, the, it's, it's really, a, I'm, I'm adopting this from a Jewish quote, but they say something like, um, it's something like, um, suffering shared is mitigated and joy shared is expanded, right? And it's the same with being mindful. If we're mindful of suffering, it will begin to mitigate it. And if we're mindful of the freedom of suffering, it will begin to grow. Uh, that was beautiful, I could not thank you for that. I think we need to finish, so I just uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just appreciating the quality of questions, actually, because they, they are really speaking to how practice can really uh, sp you know, um, respond to these 
more complex and subtle areas. So, um, so are you saying we should go on and finish? Yeah, we do need to finish, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, I just wanted to thank you for sharing the questions and allowing us to reflect around that. So, it's been wonderful. Thank you. <coughs>